I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast with Owen Murphy and Ken. Hi, guys. Hey, hello. I approach this with a slight sense of dread because nobody likes to have to apologise, do they? It's not a, it's just not a, a thing that people want to have to do. Mm. If I've offended anyone, <laughs> then I suppose no, I'm, gonna go I'm the, sorry. I'm going to go for, going the, for yeah, no, I have offended somebody, Murph, and I'm going to apologise. Okay. If that person continues to be offended, then I apologise. On today's football podcast, already out, we discuss the incredible performance of Jack Grealish in Aston Villa's FA Cup semi-final victory. Ah, yeah. During the show, I commended Grealish on his ability to hang tough at this level considering his slight frame and, I quote, spindly little legs. Mm-hmm. Since the release of that podcast, some information has come to my attention courtesy of his manager Tim Sherwood's post-match comments. He's a very durable, big guy, you know. You see the size of his legs. He takes a lot of kicks. He takes more kicks in training than he does on the pitch. So a man whose job it is to assess the size and durability of this player had the exact opposite impression of his leg size than I did. This prompted me to take a closer look at a series of photos. And what I feel Tim Sherwood's appraisal of Grealish as some sort of Stefan Armitage figure mm. is a slight exaggeration. I do concede there is quite a bit of well-defined muscle on there. So to Jack Grealish, I apologise. I may have been thrown by the socks around the ankles. The sheer amount of leg on show yeah. made me feel that it was stretched out and skinny. But, but they are very muscly legs. Um, that was big of big of McDevitt though. You wouldn't Oof. really you wouldn't really, really, have expe- show now, wouldn't really have expected of not really in keeping with his general persona. Because no, I usually no, no offense intended. Because I usually wouldn't have made the initial mistake, is that what you're saying? Well It's rare I have to apologize. Listen, to if you're people. offended by what I've just said, <laughs> on, then I'm sorry. Well it's I mean I saw Steve McManaman, I think it was, on on BT Sport before that game yesterday saying that uh, Villa should or Liverpool rather should get into Greatish. Show this kid what uh, what it really means to be in a Wembley um, Cup final. You know, just test him out with a few reducers, and um, the logic was it seemed to be pretty much the same as uh, as your logic on um, in that if he's nineteen, he must therefore be a weakling, um, which isn't always the case because uh, some people are you know, people develop at different rates. I suppose just because you're nineteen doesn't necessarily mean that you can be kicked out of a game. And, and just uh, because you're, say, 35 like myself, Ken, doesn't mean that you're, you're growing bigger and stronger by the year. Not necessarily. There's a lot of uh, timid 35-year-olds out yeah. there, Owen. But, you know, there is that thing, dad strength. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Some, some rugby player said this recently 
And I just loved it as a concept. That basically, if you're over 30, there, it's not that you're doing loads of weights. It's just that you're, just your, you're, the meat on your bones is just gristle and just really hard and tough. Well, I think, I think strength... Owen would so. not have dad strength. Well, that's actually funny. I was talking to somebody... Um, who was actually, it's actually a mother who uh, has a few young children mm. and told me that she was carrying two of them, two of them at the one time. Uh, there are a number of these kids. They're, they're all out in the garden. And I thought, Geez, you guys are talking to this couple. I thought, you guys, I, know, I know them. It wasn't just a random conversation with people. You so guys I, was, look, I was peering over their garden sure, wall. And, uh, <laughs> you guys look like, I mean, this is actually a, wor- a workout for you. These, this is just a bunch of kids hanging off you. And I was told that, yes, uh, apparently... 20% um, the mother has a 20% more strength in her right arm than she does in her left arm this was re- recently measured by a some sort of medical practitioner mm. it's a good fact isn't it yeah God, I, m- I must remember to invite you to our next uh, barbecue on um, sparkling repartee like that we're you're, gonna, a, you're, a, you're a shoe in we're going to be talking uh, rugby in just a second but one of the great tragedies in football history the Bradford Fire jump back into our thoughts late last week the disaster happened almost 30 years ago May 11th 1985 at Valley Parade a game against Lincoln City the final match of the season Bradford City had already won the third division title the fans were there to celebrate their promotion we actually spoke a number of years ago on this to Tony Delahunty who was at the ground as a commentator for Pennine Radio here's how he called the tragedy at the time on fire here at Valley Parade. The whole end of the stand at one side is actually in flames. Now I can see the orange of the flames. The game is actually stopped here at Valley Parade. Before that, there was a certain amount of shaking of fists and a bit of a hoo-ha at that far end. And they're running out of the ground now from that far end at this moment. And I'm hoping that the police, I can see some policemen's helmets over there, can control this. It looks like there could be a situation of panic, but all the time people are spilling under the pitch and we can see the flames going up into the air there. We're getting reports outside that that steam is going over and people are running around they're running around beside us they're running around all around us and people are saying get onto that pitch people all the time spilling onto the pitch the game is stopped Mickey Bullock York, you can see above me oh, what can you say the whole stand is on fire Tony it's an absolute it's spreading quickly there's going to be there's going to be problems Tony let's get all those people out of there let's get those people just take your time don't rush go down there take your time going down there don't pull on the wires keep the electrics over there keep them take their time don't rush don't push wait for the kiddies people are coming around us. You can hear the heat, the smoke coming everywhere. We are going to have to disconnect very shortly because it really is craving all the time. We're taking it. Yeah, the Tony Delahunty there, uh, absolutely staggering stuff. It's the 30th anniversary of those moments, uh, those horrific moments arrives next month. The official version of events has always been the fire started when a lighted match or a cigarette was dropped below the stand. There was years worth of litter built up there and that caught fire. Some doubts when casting that though with excerpts from a book written by Martin Fletcher. We talked about this last week, and I'm sure you've probably heard Martin or read him talking about this at some stage over the last few days. He lost his brother, his father, his uncle, and his grandfather in that fire in 1985. He was 12 years old, was at the game, but survived. And the big headline from the excerpts, which were published in The Guardian, surrounded the chairman of the club at the time, Stafford Hegenbotham. Fletcher reveals that the blaze is just one of at least nine fires at businesses owned by or associated with Hegenbotham resulting in big insurance claims. Um, we've had a chance to read the book in full. I mean, we'll talk about those claims, all right, at those, uh, those issues, what exactly he thinks about why the fire started. But also about the uh, one thing that struck me reading the book was the effect of the tragedy on him, uh, both his physical health, his mental health, his career, not just the tragedy itself when he was 12. It's just, in a sense, he had to recover from that and spent many years as a teenager trying to deal with that, which is, I would imagine 
near on impossible. Then once he started delving into the circumstances surrounding the fire, the inquiry, the Popwell inquiry, which was very truncated at the time, or very short at the time, he became more and more convinced that there was more at play than people were letting on and felt compelled to investigate further. That brought on uh, more, uh, exacerbated maybe some of the issues he had and brought on more physical and mental health issues. So we're going to talk to him about not just the the, the headlines from last week, but also a little bit uh, a little bit of that, a little bit of the effect on his life, I guess, Ken. This is um, this is a man who who has suffered quite a lot. You've been reading the book too. Yeah, it's a it's horrific. It's really horrific, and um, not everybody in Bradford is too happy with it. No, um, no, they really aren't. So, I mean, I'm just looking at the. If you check out the Claret and Banter forum, is one of the. Uh, it's probably the main Bradford fan forum. Um, and just, I mean, a, a really typical, random, kind of generic type of entry reads, uh, the timing for the launch of the book as we approach the anniversary of a special day to Bradford City fans, the special day being the 30th anniversary, is in very bad taste as its main and only focus is to generate financial gain from a disaster in which fellow City fans either died or got seriously injured. The f- four of the 56 being his closest relatives. Mm. Um, you know, that, so that's... I mean, it's not an attitude with which I would agree, uh, but... I do find that that's a kind of comment that m- might be better directed at some somebody with no connection to the club who came on from outside. And, and even at that, it's illeg- if it's legitimate reporting, somebody should probably be allowed to report it. But the, the fact that, as you say, four of those 56 were close members of his own family, it, it, it's a funny one. It, I don't know if everybody's reacting like that, but there's a, a No, and I mean, every, everybody isn't reacting like that, but that is, that's definitely one strand of the reaction. You know, this is ridiculous. Why are you digging all this up? They, this, was, this was solved at the time. It was a stray cigarette. You know, there wasn't any big, there wasn't anything more to it than that. It was just a terrible accident. Whereas uh, what Martin Fletcher is saying, or certainly the implications of what he's uh, of what he's produced is that in fact it was a lot worse than that it wasn't an accident that there was something else going on something really really awful happened there we'll get to Martin a little bit later on the programme but let's start with the rugby and the heroic defeat if there is such a thing for Lencer at the weekend Jerry and Shane are ready to go and Simon's popped over Simon how are you? Hey how's it going? Shane I might just start with you because we raised the prospect last week of a heroic defeat and whether Lencer could be in any way satisfied with that I guess an heroic defeat is what they came away with so the answer is can they be satisfied? I don't think they will be satisfied, the players. I think they'll be extremely disappointed. Um, I think they'll also recognise that they played Toulon on one of the worst days that they've performed in Europe over the last three years and had a huge opportunity to turn them over, and uh, which they didn't take. They'll take some regard from the standard of, of set-piece play. Their line-out, exceptional. Their scrum, exceptional. A couple of blips, but apart from that, they dominated a massive uh, all-star Toulon uh, pack. But unfortunately, it was some of the shortcomings that we had recognised before the game and that have existed all season that ultimately uh, stopped them from winning. Listen, they didn't have to play in the way that we thought they'd have to play to win. Mm. And that makes it even more... Um, upsetting for them. You Sorry Shane, you just mean that it, you'd set out last week an, an attacking strategy that you thought they needed to that need to implement, they needed to test their skill set, they needed to really push themselves in a creative way, but actually they didn't even need to do all that. If, if they'd done the basics a little bit better, they could have come away with a win. 
Ah no, I think their basics were good. Right. Um, I just think I, I think certainly their in the, the pack were, were really good. So their sepe was excellent. I think if they had have even without doing what we spoke about, they had to drop. They could have dropped a, a goal in the last moment to win the game, and it would have been, uh, you know, would have been a, a, a an admirable victory. But I think if they had of um, utilized some of the, the the tactics that we'd spoken about and that they are capable of using. Um, I think that they could have won quite convincingly because, yes, it was difficult under the conditions and the weather was very poor, it rained very heavily. But simple things like when there's a turnover possession, not passing the ball two phases. You always pass the ball two passes. That's what you do. Give two passes and then you make a decision from there. And instead of that, it was a couple of panic kicks or not recognising that there was potential overlaps. And if they... Had have done that, uh, they would have had potential for huge yardage. I think they made the yards that they did make outside or uh, on one-off runners were really difficult yards. They did, and they were again, they were incredibly admirable the way they carried. Very powerful, Sean O'Brien, Jamie Heaslip, uh, Jordy Murphy, all big carries. Um, but they made it really, really difficult for themselves. And I think they could have, uh, they could have made it easier, and uh, they certainly uh, could have won easier. Jerry, if you strip away how low the expectations were amongst Leinster fans in the build-up to this game and you take away Toulon's reputation and those big names that they have, just how good were Leinster on the day? Um, I thought they were very good in lots of ways. I thought it was, as Shane said, it was a very admirable performance. It's probably one of those games that it was better to be at than to watch on television. I wouldn't imagine it was a very good television spectacle as a rugby match, but it was certainly... Cup semi-final and talking to Ali Williams and Bernard Laporte and uh, Drew Mitchell afterwards, they were all um, they knew they'd been in a war, a real battle and that Lens had turned up um, I think the defence was light years better than it has been of late they rediscovered a bit more line speed they made their first up tackle, I think they only missed 10 in the match made 100, that was key they had to improve the defence, it looked ominous the first few phases of the game but they adapted really well from the first two scrums, they nearly continued to try to really get into the game, I think to show the spirit they did. I mean, it was a very gutsy and brave performance. I mean, you can be gutsy and brave in lots of ways and physically pushing your bodies on the line, which they undoubtedly did, and working so hard for each other at the breakdown and defence, recycling the ball, supporting the carrier. But it also showed a lot of bravery to come back in the second period of extra time after what seemed like a double whammy, a real hammer blow, conceding 10 points with an intercept try after the penalty. And to manufacture their best spell of rugby, perhaps not coincidentally with Redden at scrum half and Darcy in the midfield, but it certainly... They played their best brand of rugby in that spell there and, and deserved the try they got. It's an awful shame that Jimmy Gopper didn't nail that conversion, make it a three-point game. It just might have been a bit different. OK, they didn't get down the two-on-half two on again, as it turned out. But there'll be a lot of what-ifs and maybes. And ultimately, they came within a whisker. They drew over 80 minutes. They came within a whisker of winning the match against the two-time champions in Marseille. And given the circumstances of everything in the build of the game, if whatever... The, the performance had to have been some good for us to have nearly yielded what probably would have been their finest result in Europe, certainly for many a time. Shane, if we just focus on that 10 minutes that they were a man up in extra time, there were level scores at that stage. Was there a bit of panic? Because the Ian Madigan intercept is the obvious moment there that killed the game, but Rob Carney had been turned over. I think they'd given away another penalty in that same period. Do you think they got a little bit of a, little bit of a sense of, OK, now is our time and maybe stretch things a little bit? I don't know if that was the case. I don't know if there was a, there was a momentary exhale. I don't know if you could use that. If it was just okay, hang on a second, 
the pressure that has been so immense through the whole game, and it was, was a, Jerry was right, when you're at the stadium, I was kind of amazed to hear people talk about it subsequently that weren't at the stadium about how bad a game it was. It was I really enjoyed it, and, and maybe that's you know because of my Leinster background, but I just thought it was a real nip and tuck game. It wasn't one, it wasn't a beautiful game, but it had everything, you know, had a lot of the elements that you want in a, in a semi-final. Um, but uh, I think there were, and there was a pressure was right there through the whole game. It was nick, nick, nip and tuck, so difficult to get three points. And as a result, when you, you thought uh, they were a man down, and I'm sure they thought they were a man down, then it was actually we can seize this game, we can go for it. And it never felt as if either team was really going after it. I felt that they were willing to risk uh, to win. And that was a turning point when the yellow card came then I think Leinster thought, well, we can. We it is the onus is on us now to go after the win, the game and win it to actually take this from Toulon. And unfortunately, they had the penalty and it was brilliantly kicked um, by uh, half penny. And then there was the the interception, which we've seen through the season that uh, Leinster haven't exploited their um, overlaps well enough. And there's been far too many occasions where instead of just passing to the man next to you, running straight and, and drawing a player and passing to the next man, which is really basic, simple rugby that uh, you know can be executed by these players, that instead of a, a, a needless um, skip pass was thrown and it was picked off. Shane, that intercept, at the time, it looked like the end of the game uh, for Leinster. They did come back into it a little bit, but ultimately the losing of it for them in extra time anyway. Not all Madigan's fault. Maybe the support runners weren't close enough to him. Um, and ultimately, Habana came in on a brilliant line and spotted early, and he's maybe one of the greatest intercept readers of all time. But ultimately, this is one that sticks is going to stick in the mind for coaches, for fans, and maybe for Madigan too. Yeah, I think it will. I think... I think he he does have a tendency to throw that pass, and you know he'll regret it, and you know he'll learn from it. I'm sure Habana, you have to be you do have to be aware that he's capable of doing that. He's brilliant, probably the, probably one of the best. I, you know, I don't know how many what percentage of his career tries are intercept, but they're a good number. Uh, he comes in, he reads brilliantly because they were in huge trouble if that went to hand. Um, so I will. It'll stick in Every's me- memory. I think what we did see though was. The, the standard of, of Leinster's players in the pack certainly like they were I thought they were really immense um, and I think they have the, the ability to play at a different level than they're playing at at the moment and, and to show more and I think it was unfortunate that um, you know when they when they tried to go that extra gear and uh, one of the occasions they tried to to move it they they couldn't and and it really cost them and I think that's sort of you know maybe symptomatic of of a, of some of the concerns that we have about Leinster at the moment. Jerry Madigan looked a little bit haunted immediately afterwards and uh, he was he was subbed off not long not long after and just looked uh, deathly pale at the certainly on TV at the end of the game uh, is he a guy who can recover from that do you think because he he what was frustrating was he had done so well to come back from having missed one kick and slotted a couple of longer range ones his kicking has kept Lenser in this competition for a large part certainly his place kicking would you back him to recover from that? Yeah I would simply because the evidence is there throughout his career as he's done this you remember back to his school's rugby career he famously missed a kick in something like the 11th minute of injury time for Black Rock in a Lenser School's Cup quarter final against Kilkenny and as a result Black Rock were knocked out having to meet him that night uh, and um, he was distraught and he came back and ironed out all the flaws in his kicking and just took his, his place kicking to a new scientific level, became forensic in his preparation and became a wonderful goal kicker. 
he missed that one late on against Murrayfield, came back the following week, nailed six and six. The week later, he nailed six and six again. As you said, he missed one there when he hit the post, and his response was to nail two fabulous kicks, one of which Lee Halfpenny had a moment's identical position. He missed in the game. And you're right, they wouldn't have been in the semi-final if it wasn't for Ian Madigan's place kicking in many ways. Um, I don't remember him ever having an intercept pass like that, cut off like that before. It's, it's normally a strength in his game that it does go to hand. And I think you have to make some allowance for us, as you've been saying, that Brian Havana is probably the best intercept winner I've ever seen in my life. Uh, just the way he reads it. And it was almost like freeze frame. You could almost see from the lofty heights of the Stade Velodrome, you could see it unfolding before it happened. It was just horrific. But yeah, you asked me, do, do I think he can recover? I think he's a mentally strong lad. And he's shown it before they can. Shane Habana said afterwards, it was quite struck, it was almost a throwaway remark, but he said that the players arrived, the Toulon players had a mindset that they'd probably get a bit of a walkover against Leinster and maybe were shocked at Leinster's quality. Uh, I'm filling in the end of that sentence there because he kind of said it and moved on in the post-match interview on Sky. You guys had Johnny Wilkinson with you there, uh, who was coming over from coaching the team uh, and chatting. And I thought before the game, Johnny Wilkins didn't didn't portray any idea that this was going to be a walk in the park for Toulon. I was it was quite ominous. I thought how fired up he seemed to think the players were and what they were going to do. Uh, did you get the sense from Wilkinson even that they were a bit surprised at how flat they were? Um, well, I think it got you got an insight to Johnny Wilkinson there and how fired up he'd be. Yeah, he was, it was re- yeah, it was re- yeah, it was really yeah, it was really good to yeah. the entire squad. Um, and maybe they would have uh, played a little bit better if it did, but. Um, you know, I think that they didn't expect um, Lancer to play that the way that they did. I think conditions were a leveling um, factor. I think it allowed Lancer's uh, defence um, to to bite in a little bit or come up very flat. Uh, they didn't. There was very a few occasions where they had to drift um, or where they they were numbers down uh, because the two reasons Toulon weren't making massive yardage. Um, in the at the tackle area, one because with the with the ball going to ground a little bit, and also the footing not great, it's hard to get those really powerful runs going. And also, Lancer were phenomenal in their tackle and the, at rook time as well. So they um, negated them uh, to, to some degree there. The the other degree was they you know Toulon weren't trying to move the ball wide; it just wasn't happening. So there was a lot of run out run out runners, and you knew that where they were going. Um, so that sort of negated a lot of the threats that Toulon have um, and allowed the Leinster defence to be very um, secure in what they were doing. Uh, and also, the type of game it was, Leinster employed a lot of one-out runners and there wasn't a huge amount of continuity and there was very little play that went wide and there was even less play that held the inside and then moved the ball wide. So, you know, there was a lot of factors to bring it down to heart and passion and intensity and emotion. And I think, you know, Leinster showed that in spades. They were, you know, you'd be proud of, of Irish teams. And we've seen um, Munster on occasion do, do similar things where, you know, they look as if they, they shouldn't have an, um, a chance in the game. But because of a number of reasons, mainly because of heart, they, they get a result or they come close to getting a result. And that was I think, something similar uh, to what Leinster achieved uh, at the weekend, uh, coupled with, again, I can't... Um, uh, express enough how impressed I was at, at scrum and line out and I thought they nearly got away a few times on that rolling mall ultimately it led to a try I think they um, they they used this they used it pretty well they could have maybe uh, used it a little bit more I certainly would have brought um, Redden on I would have had Redden on from the start I would have thought his tempo could have made a difference and I think it did in extra time so 
um, you know, there's a, you know, some positives certainly, you know, but also um, there, the, some of the flaws that again that we've we've seen all season, um, that they'll they'll be disappointed that they they couldn't change on that day, and probably unsurprising that they couldn't though. Shane, the build-up to the Sean O'Brien try was almost a tease for Leinster fans. So Jamie Heasab take a great line for the first time in the game. Uh, Luke Fitzgerald beat a couple of players. Sean Cronin gained yards, and it all looked so effective and fluid for those few phases. And and yet, any time they showed ambition, I thought uh, in the in the rest of the game, things usually went wrong for them. They, it, the ball looked like a liability when it went through the back line at times. Um, quite often saw them um, getting tackled behind the gain line. And yet in that moment, we saw that glimpse of what was possible with what is an incredibly talented team. And I think we saw on the day that maybe Leinster actually are, have more talented players than this current Toulon team or, who looked a little bit old on the day. But did, did the game change your opinion about Matt O'Connor? Is he, is he a coach that's good at some aspects, but ultimately can't get, um, figure out how to get the back line working? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. There's, there's, there's elements of the forward play that, that's excellent. Um, I, I think the back play is, is not working. It's just not moving across the back line well enough. Um, they're not holding the inside defenders and, and then putting um, players in space around the corner. And they haven't done it for a significant uh, period of time. Um, I think that there's a, a, an element of coaching there, but there's also an element of uh, the players not being as good or as versed at doing it as, as the players in, in you know a couple of years ago. Um, I think... Uh, the problem that, that uh, well, you mentioned that the period that Leinster really got going and the tempo got going. Listen, that was also at the end of, of, of the match or the end of extra time. And there was certainly a lot of fatigue bodies around there. I think that even the lines that they were picking and, and the yardage that Leinster's uh, big carriers, as you mentioned, they were making were hard yards. There was easier yards to be made out there. And I know, again, I, I do give the proviso that... Um, that uh, or the caveat that um, the weather conditions were not good. But that said, it's not smart running into the, the area where Toulon, those massive Toulon defenders are most comfortable. And I think we saw at one point, and it was quite late in the game, we saw Devin Toner, who's added a lot to his game in the last couple of years. And he's well able to carry the ball and drop it off on the outside. And he did it. And it just gained a few extra yards. And it could have gone again. And that didn't happen. And I think the coaching seems to be at the moment um, to allow to be too conservative and not trust a very group of skilled players. And we've seen them with Ireland and we've seen them before with Leinster. And I think certainly the forwards, you can challenge them more. They can do even more. And I thought they forwards were exceptional in many ways at the weekend. But I think they, they put them through themselves through an incredible amount of hard work that they necessarily didn't get rewarded as rewarded as they should have for. And um, I think from a back's perspective, I think uh, there's quite still quite a lot of work to do. Jerry, uh, last word to you. Toulouse Claremont, Toulon Claremont, I should say, in another final at Twickenham. Not exactly what this new tournament was crying out for? Certainly not. They've only sold about 31,000 tickets. More than likely now, Toulon don't travel in huge numbers. They might bring maybe 5,000, Claremont 10 to 15. Um, I'd say they could have done with an Irish presence in that final with all the expats who were in London and all the travelling Leinster supporters who would have swelled the numbers considerably. Instead, they're going to get an all-French final in London with the upper tier of the stadium closed. 
it um, underlines the sheer stupidity in having semi-finals completed 13 days before the final, these two-week interludes, and kind of hastily rush off this tournament so the top couturers and the Premiership can have an un- unfettered run in for the month of May. It's not the way to treat what is still the best tournament in Europe. And if nothing else, the two occasions in saint Etienne and Marseille show that this is the best tournament in European rugby by distance. Um, no amount of policy is going to change that, and the players all desperately want to play in it, and the fans want to be a part of it. Um, and it's a shame it's come to this. Um, I hope for the sake of the tournament, it's a funny tournament, um, the Heineken Cup stroke, European Champions Cup, usually the best teams win it, as I've said in this show before. You know, Leinster in their pomp, Munster in their pomp, Wasps, Leicester, Toulouse, the best teams tend to win it. The one exception to that was two years ago when Claremont played the best rugby in the final, were the best team in the tournament that year, and somehow contrived to lose with Dallin Armitage's breakaway try and a few decisions that went against them the day. I hope for the sake of rugby, um, for what Claremont represent as compared to what Toulon represent, with our latest um, array of Galacticos about to join next season. Quake Cooper was in the stand of the weekend, Man Nonu's on his way, Dwayne Vermallon's on his way, Man Samoa's on his way. I would just hope that for the sake of rugby, Claremont beat them. I think they're the best team for sure that's never won this tournament. I think their brand of rugby, the way they play, although they get a chance to play in the semi-final, I hope they play it in the final and I hope they win. All right, I think you're not Toulon's biggest fan. We'll leave it there. Listen, Jerry, Shane, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks a million. Cheers, thanks. Mm. You remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, hmm. And I know a butt whooping was coming at the <laughs> I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born. James, 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 Tony is born. I ran Barkley is born. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now. I'm an alien. Did Google even get your own information? I'm an alien. He should be gone. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Uh, it seems like Shane was quite impressed by Johnny Wilkinson's energy before the game there as well he should be I thought it was we all were. it worked really well um, for and if, if I'm sure a lot of people would have watched the game. I found it a little strange. I found it great from a TV point of view and it was, fair, it was well done on Sky for getting it done. If I was too long, I might be thinking, well, Johnny, you are coaching the team. You're literally giving team talks there before the game. We kind of need you. You're on the bench during the game. We kind of need you in the dressing room at halftime and after and before extra time. But yeah, almost it was t- always. TV's game. Uh, TV's game. Almost always when they use somebody involved at halftime or whenever it is, it's really bland and almost pointless. But I thought he was absolutely brilliant. He analysed it objectively and in a measured way, even though he was clearly dying for Toulon to win. I think it was because it was slightly different to the usual case where they go over and interview somebody before they're about to play. In this case, it is one of their analysts who was it's a yeah. Sky analyst who also... We're also paying ha- you, Johnny. To be co- <laughs> yeah, there might have been a touch of that as well. So give us a little bit of high energy here, but he, he was very good. Ian Madigan, Jerry seems fairly comfortable that he's going to recover psychologically from that. Top level players have to ultimately recover from those things. But as you said in one of your questions, it won't be forgotten, unfortunately. Well, I thought it was doubly cruel for A, that to happen, uh, because Habana did read it brilliantly and it made the pass look worse than it actually was. But then for Joe Schmidt to be 
to appear on the TV screen within seconds. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, literally the worst person, Ian McGregor, you know, Ian McGregor might be thinking, well, maybe Joel missed this game. He's been pretty busy after the Six Nations. Pops up on screen. He was very nice about it, obviously, Joe was. But irrespective of that, it's just because it's such a big game and because it was an extra time and because that game hung on little tiny moments, that's really what anybody's going to remember from it, whether that's fair or unfair. And, and ultimately, it was about a failure um, to finish off a numerical advantage. Every time Leinster had an overlap in the game, they either kicked, chose the wrong option, or there was the intercept pass. So I think that's what actually divides really good teams from good teams, is how they do that. They're way better at it in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, you see the likes of Australia staying games that they shouldn't do just because they're so much better than most of the European teams at it. And that's ultimately what's defined Leinster's season as well as how poor they are at those overlaps. Yeah, and it was nice to see that they did have the fire and they did defend well because those things weren't happening either. Yet technically from and from an attacking point of view you can't just turn something on that yeah well it was an incredible process. turnaround in most things in the breakdown scrum line out tackling defensive structure all those things but actually their passing and their attacking structure was as bad as it's been all season and and the way they played badly all season ultimately harmed them in this one-off game coming up in the irish times second captains i shouldn't say coming up because it's already out there the irish times second captains football podcast that's yeah <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. You walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. Come down to Anfield and we'll see them up. What you doing down here, you shawny man? <laughs> Well, and there was some big football on over the weekend. Uh, Chelsea beat Manchester United on the Saturday. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that and uh, Jose Mourinho's perverse uh, need not to win beautifully. Yep. And we're also going to talk a little bit about Aston Villa and Jack Grealish and their triumph over Liverpool um, yesterday at Wembley. All right, we're joined now by Martin Fletcher, author of 56, The Story of the Bradford Fire. Martin, it's great to have you on, first of all. We appreciate you talking to us about this. That's my pleasure. It's been a a story. I don't even want to call it a story. It maybe doesn't give it it the gravitas it deserves. But it's been something that even over the last few days, there's been a huge amount of publicity over what you've written and and certain parts of your book in particular. But can you tell us uh, how those last few days have been for you? You know, publishing this book about something so deeply personal, doing the interviews to publicize it. um, How has it been over the last sort of five or six days? Um, Thursday was crazy. It was um, interviews all day from um, 8am to um, 9pm. Wednesday night was similarly busy. But since then, there's been a little bit of calm at the centre of the storm, as there often is. I know online media is um, raging about the book at the minute, but I'm just shut my Twitter account down an hour or so before the story broke, simply um, because I just understand that it's going to obviously impassion people and there's going to be um, people in Bradford who first have to deal with the shock, then the disbelief, and then they're going to have anger, and that anger seems to have been directed towards myself and many other directions. But I think this is part of a process of what happens when facts like this come to light. But from my own perspective down here in London, it's... Um, it's been it's been busy, but it's been relatively calm, really, and quite often that's the way it's felt that way sometimes thirty years ago as well, to be honest. Just on that reaction you talk about, in there's, there's a line in the book: "The people of Bradford don't want to know; they never have." Is that something that you uh, you still feel? You feel this week that people are reacting uh, negatively towards your book because they don't want to revisit, reopen the old wounds. Um, I think, as was said on Sunday Supplements on Sky Sports yesterday, the Popperwell uh, conclusions did provide 
closer to a lot of people in Bradford. And when I set out to write this book, then obviously I set out to actually prove my mother's fears wrong in order to actually show the basis of those findings. Only I couldn't find them, and I followed the facts. I then got taken to a place I didn't think I'd find. The people of Bradford not wanting to know, that is actually a quote in relation to a meeting I had with my local MP three years ago in relation to a Bradford MP. Um, and my belief that, as my local MP, Sadiq Khan, the Shadow Justice Secretary, said, and I agreed with him, he did not have a locus as an MP for Tutin, but I needed an MP in Bradford to actually champion my cause. My prediction was that they wouldn't want to know, um, or that MP wouldn't want to know, and nothing came of it. So I basically did what my local MP told me to do, and um, ultimately nothing did come of it. But I don't think that's a fair reflection of the people on the ground in Bradford. They don't want, a, and, and moreover, it's a case of they probably don't want to know the facts that I brought to light They're prob or of certain people, but I'm hearing from the ground that it's actually very supportive in West Yorkshire and very supportive in and around Bradford, and indeed that it's not necessarily a fair representation of how people feel on the ground is what's been showing on local me on a lot of the local media up there. So um, I take reassurance in that. I take reassurance in the fact that I'm being told that I've got 85 to 90 percent local support, um, but I don't think that's being reflected in the media, um, a lot of the media in West Yorkshire. Uh, Martin, um, I've since since reading uh, your book and since since reading some of the coverage of this, I saw a film uh, that the BBC recorded a year after um, a year after the Bradford fire, which features a, an interview with Stafford Hagenbottom. I'm sure you've you've seen this, uh, obviously. And at one point, uh, I think it's John Helm who was the commentator on the day is asking uh, Stafford Hagenbottom. Um, about a poison pen campaign and graffiti that that has appeared in the town, and and they show some of these graffitis, and you see Stafford Hagenbottom killed fifty six city fans, um, and this has been kind of written up in a couple of places, and he's obviously dismissing that and, and saying that it's silly. That graffiti does seem to suggest that anecdotally, at least, um, in Bradford, people were uh, at least wondering about his about his role or his possible responsibility for what happened on that day? I mean, there was a series of graffiti like that. Quite often with graffiti, I feel that it's um, a popular expression, perhaps, of certain sentiments which have not found their way into the public domain. Um, I remember seeing that live as a 13-year-old and seeing those shots. Um, and I do feel that, yeah, obviously you wouldn't go to those extent, to that extent, unless that was your genuine feeling when you daubed upon that wall, I guess. And um, obviously that is indicative of certain feelings within the city at that time, I would have to conclude. Is that why you ultimately decided to pursue this story and to see if there was more to it? Because it seemed as though your mother also, um, although she didn't speak to you about it at the time, a few years later, she said, um, she, well, essentially she had some of the same suspicions. Um, she told me that on the ninth anniversary of a Bradford City Car Park. Um, and actually, I had to bully it out of her a little bit, browbeat her out of her a little bit. Um, and I kind of tried to put it out of my mind for six years thereafter. And I succeeded. And then I was in the back of the cop at Valley Parade after Bradford had been an Arsenal 2-1 in 2000 with my um, best friend, um, 
from university, who's still my best friend today. And um, he just looked at me and um, he asked, I talked to him through the day, and um, he just said, what caused it again? And I said, a cigarette or match. And he just looked at me and said, and you're happy with that? And I said, yeah, why? And he just looked at me and said, I was just wondering. And it was like, it was just that look on his face of, you don't have the detailed answer for me. Um, a look on his face, which I'd seen short in many um, seminars in, at Warwick, because I did two degrees there in the Politics and International Studies Department of, you should have that information. You should know that information. Why can you not give me that information? And at that point, I thought, well, my mum's turning 50 next year, and obviously we'd have a conversation that we'd had six years earlier. And I thought, I should have that information, and I should know that information, especially having, by this point, got a degree in politics, international studies, and an MA in international political economy. So I thought, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to find that information. I'm going to put my mother's mind at rest, at ease, and... Um, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And um, I honestly, honestly felt that by following the facts, it would be a relatively um, quick process and one which would actually provide my mother with peace of mind rather than another 15 years of hell of having to um, see me struggle with this over the years and the effect that it's had um, on my health and on my happiness. Do you mind talking us through a little bit of that effect that it has had, as you say, on your health and your happiness? Um, I mean, ultimately, every time I've been dragged back, my weight has ballooned 50, 60 pounds. Um, that's probably his evident on certain TV shots with me at the minute. Um, so every time I get into this, the, one th the way I do seem to cope is binge eating and even binge drinking. And um, a consequence of that has been um, alcohol withdrawal seizures, especially in the first two years I was looking at this. I ended up having um, had six or seven seizures in about a two-year period and um, waking up on a hospital bed on the night before my 30th birthday with a suspected brain tumour. Um, but this was all a consequence of sort of the, destruction, the destructive element that I was having um, upon myself whilst I was going through that. So I thought, I'd best leave this alone for a while. And I did. I left it alone for five years. And then I got told who the source was to Paul Foote's story, which he'd written in the mirror in 1985. I was told there was more out there if I was to go looking. Um, so I went looking. And again, my weight shot up 50 pounds, 60 pounds. And at the end of it, again, I had another seizure. Um, then I was dragged back into it in 2011 when um, Sir Oliver made perhaps some ill-timed comments about the Hillsborough campaigners. And um, again, as that was when I tr met with my local MP and with Steve Rotherham, the, the Hillsborough campaigning MP. And um, that's where we didn't go anywhere um, with that, really, because we didn't get sufficient locus, which, as a politics student, I completely understand. Um, and then I started rewriting the book, and again, my weight shot up this time from about 180 pounds to about 240 pounds. Um, and again, <laughs> the day after I finished rewriting the current book, again, I had a seizure. Um, so it's had very, very um, profound impacts upon my, upon my health, um, and a battle with the weight, and um, it's, it's not come cost-free. I look at certain comments and it's almost as if this has come cost free to me. It's the last thing it's come out to me and um, it's come at a very heavy cost. And I know my mother at times has been um, hoping and adamant that I should just let it go and it's not worth what it's doing to you. It's eating you up from the inside out. And um, ultimately, 
I think in certain respects, it, up, up to recent days and the reaction in recent days, I, I think she wishes that she never had that conversation with me in the car park 21 years ago. You say up to the recent days. Uh, it's, it sounds like maybe that outlook has changed. Um, it has. I think she feels, as I do, a great sense of liberation now that those facts are in the public domain for public consideration and that people can reach her own opinions upon those facts. And with what George Galloway um, in Bradford yesterday calling for a, a new inquiry or a judicial review, people are coming to a conclusion upon the facts that I presented in the book. And um, I would imagine we've only had the book out now for um, literally four days. As people read those facts and as people consider those facts, I think people will reach their own conclusions and um, that's what just those people to do really just um, just to look at a look at those facts reach our opinions and um, I think really the main thing is now that I feel that I don't actually have to feel that I am restricted in what I can say as what happened to me as a child and um, I feel my mother feels the same way about what happened in when she has conversations about what happened 30 years ago the facts are out there now and um, I think that's the most important thing for, for us personally is that sense of liberation that we can talk freely and I feel that perhaps that's a sense of liberation that might be shared by a lot of people in West Yorkshire as well. How freely can you speak now, Martin, about Stafford Hegginbotham and what you believe um, may have caused the fire that day? Um, I'd rather not be drawn on that at this moment. I'm a great believer in letting the facts speak for themselves. I think on this occasion the facts speak clearer and plainer and more loudly than any other set of facts I think I can remember. And Perhaps that's something when people have had more of an opportunity to um, to buy the book to look at that. That that's something I might be able to make um, a comment on in a, in a in a week or two's time. Okay. Well, the, the, the details are in the book of the many fires that happened and the various payouts at Hagenbottom's businesses over the years, mm-hmm. and you you set that out quite clearly. Uh, in the book, but just in terms of the uh, Popperwell inquiry, which you know people will look at this and the bare facts of it and say, "Well, this is all." I mean, if if these facts were were uh, all relevant, surely they would have come up in the Popperwell inquiry. But you lay out a number of issues with that inquiry, not the least of which was how how short the time frame was and how uh, minimal really the terms of reference were. Yeah, the terms of reference really are the key thing here, and it perhaps takes um, a legally trained person to actually um, look at those look at that remit and, attract, and and lawyers to look at that remit and understand what that remit is actually saying because actually I think that remit is very misleading in the way it's been set um, ultimately if you look at it and take it purposely then you reach a different conclusion but of course everything in English law has to be um, taken literally and if you take that remit literally then we never had an inquiry into Bradford we had an inquiry into the operation of of the Safety Sports Grounds Act 1975 in relation to the events at Valley Parade that day the only failure of the act at Valley Parade that day had been the failure of the Home Secretary over previous six years to actually implement that legislation as had always been intended by Lord Justice Wheatley when he introduced it after 66 people died in 1971 at an old firm Derby at Park um, in Glasgow. Yeah, I mean, Martin, I think a lot of people when they, when they read the story will kind of look at this chain of evidence and think, well, you know, I think as you say in the book yourself, you know, can anyone really be this unlucky? But then we'll struggle to accept the final implication of that um, because 
you know, they maybe they'll think, well, why would anybody, why would anybody start a fire in a when the stand was actually full? Why would why would you do that when it when it's actually the match day? Who who would take that kind of a risk? Although I wonder as well. And because, you know, you, you, you describe the fire, the first half of the book is kind of describing the events leading up to the fire and the fire itself. And it's, it's really harrowing. One of the chilling things about it is the docility of the crowd as this disaster is happening all around them. And nobody knows. Everybody sort of trusts that things are going to work out. And people don't really start reacting until it's already um, too late. Uh, it seems as though people in general are very reluctant to believe um, the worst is about to happen or, or, or has already happened. Yeah, um, obviously, I think you're tra- talking about the chant in there, which, um, yeah, is is hard to look back on. And um, at that time, what you have to remember as well is the um, at the front of the stand, you've got scores and scores of people who are literally saving people's lives. And 50 people were documented that day at saving at least one life. And um, the view of that 50 or a number of that 50 was that they hadn't done anything um, out of the ordinary, that there were a much wider group of people who had actually um, saved lives that day. Now... Um, I think, yeah, it's sort of you look at you look back at that footage, and you have to remember we're talking a, a, an era before CGI graphics in the cinema, and really it just is so overpowering on the senses, and the shock is um, it's just kind of overpowering. And I think as people realise the gravity of what they're seeing and the fact that it is real, then obviously the um, the crowd do sort of calm down, and um, they're horrified by what they've seen. I mean, as regards the question of what um, of it being in an occupied stand, and what people seem to be forgetting at the minute is that the only thing beneath that stand, and like most stands elsewhere around the world, is that because the stand was built into a valley, there was nothing beneath that stand. So there was no offices, there were no um, there were no changing rooms. All you had beneath that stand was um, its foundations and paper which had dropped beneath that stand um, from the stand onto those foundations. So it would have been impossible for it to have ever been a fire if the stand had been unoccupied. Yeah, uh, I take that point there. I mean, one of the points that Popwell, who stood by the inquiry, has raised this week, or he raised last week, I should say, is that, well, any question of an insurance payout is uh, is incorrect because that uh, there would not have been an insurance payout on that stand. I have to um, beg to differ with the role of the VAR. It's documented in Bradford City history books such as Bores and Bantams and a complete record of Bradford City by Terry Frost, the club statistician at the time, and also in the newspapers that half a million pound insurance payout was received. I've actually um, got a friend who is a journalist who has spoken to the forensic um, expert at that time who said the insurance company was very interested in the report. So there was an insurance company, there was an insurance payout. That payout was half a million pounds. Consequence of spending half a million pounds at that time under the Football Ground Improvements Trust guidelines is that you've got 75% grant once a designated club, so that would have led to a further £375,000. So you're looking then at £875,000 as a result of what happened that day. Something that I find difficult to understand, Martin, I mean, maybe you can shed some light on this for me, is, is, I mean, I remember when I saw this story on Wednesday, I thought, well, you can't be serious. You know, reading it, it was it was immediately, I thought, this is a, this, this is an incredible story. So this guy's been linked to a whole string of fires. Um, I'm, I'm sure that would have been an incredible story, an equally incredible story in 1985. How did this not become an issue at the time? I mean, there must have been people in the city who remembered. There must have been people who had the information. We've mentioned the graffiti and the fact that 
you know, it, there was there was clearly people who knew or people who had an inkling in the city. Why did Stafford Eggenbottom never, why, why was he never subjected to this sort of scrutiny at the time or, or during his own life? That's one of the reasons why I'm reluctant to be drawn at the minute is because actually I think that serious questions have to be asked about that matter. And it's not fair to actually um, ask for those answers in a rush because I think one thing which happened after the fire at Bradford was answers were reached in a rush. However, at the same time, yes, indeed, it's quite amazing that Paul Foote, who was a great investigative journalist who was alerted to this story, wasn't allowed to follow it up, wasn't allowed to go into any further detail um, as regards these fires because ultimately his sources told me that he thought he'd follow it up and he didn't believe he did because he knew there were more fires out there and um, he basically just um, repeated what his source had told him um, and obviously done the due diligence check on that but wasn't allowed to take it any further. Um, it is it is, it is, is alarming that the fact of these fires were not made um, available or that the inquiry team wasn't aware of Finding. I think that to actually withhold material evidence from, from a judge is um, a very serious offence, and rightly so. And um, I just can't see how, having withheld that evidence, that you could then reach a full and fair picture um, in your findings. Although, to be fair, again, as regards the remit, he was never given the freedom to do that. So... Um, there's a lot of very serious questions that I do believe have to be answered there because there's always, in Bradford at the time, I remember rumours and not being able to quite quantify exactly what had happened and exactly what the nature of these incidents were. So rumours, but I have to say, I can't believe that given it had happened over the previous 18 years, so that would be like going back today to, what, 1997? that these would not have been within the knowledge of either the West Yorkshire Fire Authority or West Yorkshire Police. Martin, you've talked to us uh, very openly early in the interview about the physical and mental health effects of essentially looking for the truth over, I guess, in your adult years. Would you mind talking to us about the effect that that day had at that time on you and in the weeks that followed for uh, for, for a teenage boy? I mean, it's unimaginable to us. Yeah, it's... um it's crazy looking back on it. it you, as I think Chalice McLean said in the Observer yesterday, I went to the, the game a child and I had to be a grown up thereafter. And um, I became an adult at 12. I became an adult the moment I told my family was dead. And I was an adult trapped in a child's body, a child's frame. And um, I felt a great sort of disconnect with my, with my peers at school um, for a number of years until we probably got to our um, mid to late teens. Um, um, and obviously being at Hillsborough, having sort of over the course of maybe 14, 15, probably from the age of 15 actually having got to a point of 16 whereby I felt that perhaps I was able to sort of live happily again. I then found myself at Hillsborough for when the disaster happened there and um, obviously that had a huge effect for a year and I'd say really, yes, all, all in all when I look back on it, I'd say that day probably had a, a lasting effect for probably 10, 11 years thereafter and um, obviously I do sort of discuss it in the book. I do look back on it now and find it quite hard to um, to look at because um, ultimately in those days there was no bereavement counselling, there were, there were no sort of um, 
there's no sort of support like that. And um, you've got a number of people, including myself, who'd suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder with no recognition in the United Kingdom at the time that even that condition existed. So, um, yeah, it's be, it was tough for a good decade thereafter. And um, then about, what, four or five years later, I, I started embarking on, on the path I did with the book. Martin, one thing that strikes me about the the sort of latter, uh, the last few years really is that you seem to have been, there's been a sort of reunion between yourself and Bradford City. You moved away for maybe obvious painful reasons from the club, but in more recent times you seem to have rekindled uh, a love of the club that would have been handed down to you by your dad. Absolutely. It's um, always will be the family club. Um, the deal I did with my dad was to support the local club. I'm sure when my dad um, did that deal, he didn't anticipate us ever living outside of West Yorkshire. Um, but yes, yeah, sort of, I found myself um, very much a reapproachment um, on the cup run of 2012-13 when they got to the League Cup final. It was, um, it was quite ironic. Um, watching Arsenal for many a year with my university friends, and um, when the draw got made for the Capital One Cup quarter final, and um, the night before my well the night of night before my 40th birthday Arsenal went to Valley Parade and um, I just thought yeah someone's actually telling you something here someone's giving you a message you should go home and spend the night before your 40th at home with your family and the place where I always feel closest to my family which is Valley Parade and ironically I actually went into the Arsenal end that night and um, obviously Bradford beat Arsenal in a remarkable game and that by the time that they had done I'm just sort of looking around the stadium and the familiar sights and smells and sounds and um, I'm thinking yeah you're back home and um, really from, from that point on um, it's been it all, it, we have had that sort of um, that reconciliation and um, I have great respect for um, the owners of the club who are boyhood friends themselves, Mark Lawn and Gordon Gibb, and great respect for manager Phil Parkinson and what he's managed to achieve over the last few years um, since taking a club on the brink of going into non-league football is remarkable. And um, it's been wonderful this year to be there when they beat Chelsea and um, and beat Sunderland. And um, it's it's always going to be difficult when you live in um, southwest London. It's um, obviously a full 450-mile round trip when I've got Arsenal half an hour up the, um, up, up, up the, up the Victoria line in London. Um, but at the same time, Bradford City will always be, um, always be very special to me and Bradford City will always be my family's club. And Bradford City have got a set of unique supporters and a unique culture at the club, a lot of which has been born of the, um, of the spirit and the bond and the experiences we went through that day. Um, and really, ultimately... I guess what I'm trying to do is just, um, with the book, is just actually give the people of Bradford and the supporters of Bradford City what they should have been given 30 years ago. There does seem to be an element from perhaps certain people, certain supporters at the club have shoot the messenger, but I think that once people have read the book and once word of mouth goes around the city about what actually is in the book, then I think that things will change and I don't I don't blame the Bradford City fans who are doing that at the minute simply because I've been through that same shock, process of shock, disbelief and anger myself before coming out the other end. Well the book is called 56, the story of the Bradford fire. I don't know what the next step is Martin whether or not there is another inquiry or, or what you're uh, raising awareness will ultimately do but uh, I have to thank you very much for coming onto the show today and talking to us about that. Thank you very much. Martin did mention there that he was at Hillsborough also, um, which is horrifically unlucky, whatever way you, you want to term that. But he had to he followed Forrest as well. 
Yeah, he well, his family had moved um, to Nottingham or to near Nottingham for his dad's job, um, and they would still go back to see Bradford City because they'd start going to see Bradford uh, while they were still living uh, in that area. And but they were they obviously weren't going to every game. They were going to a lot of Forest games. I mean, um, uh, at that time, and he actually mentions that his brother. At the, at the match was saying oh Forrest were playing Everton on the same day and his brother was saying oh can you believe we missed the chance to see the champions for this it was a really, was a really terrible game uh, that they you know that they were complaining about it at the time um, so yeah a bit by virtue of that connection to Nottingham Forest he then ended up being there at Hillsborough as a Forest supporter you know on the, at the other end of the field from the Lepping Sane end um, so a quite remarkable coincidence, really, to be present at the two most terrific disasters in English football in the 80s. He spoke quite eloquently there about why, about the cost to him of actually pursuing this, that it's not something that has, he's arrived at without it impacting his own life, which does seem to be the implication of some of the criticism. Uh, how dare this guy rake over these things? Does he not understand the pain that he could potentially cause? He's causing a lot of pain to himself and going over it, I think. Yes, I just think it's one of the strangest human impulses of all, this idea that, you know, just let sleeping dogs lie, that um, it's happened now, just effectively get over it. You know, whatever happened, happened. It's not going to bring anyone back. Just just move on. And I, I just can't understand that. Now, obviously, they're coming at it. Anyone who's saying that, who thinks that they have the right to say that to Martin, Obviously, must have lo- the only possible way you could say something like that is if you've lost someone that was very dear to you as well. But even then, to say that to someone who's suffered as much as Martin has, who suffered as much on the day as Martin did, quite apart even from the suffering since then, to then say that you don't have the right to find out whether there's something uh, something wrong here, something horribly, horribly wrong here, I, I just I, I can't get it. And that the what what happened happened so. The next thing that you must do, I think, is to try and find out whether the people who may have been to blame for it were held to account or not. And that's, I, mean, I, I think that that, that that is just self-evidently the only right and proper thing that you can do in a situation like that. I think there's something about it that people kind of naturally revolt against believing that something as terrible as that could actually have happened. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that, that that people really do, I think, have a, it's almost like a, a psychological insulation. I mean... The, the the fact that people are reluctant to believe in terrible things doesn't mean that they don't sometimes happen, mm. and they do. And uh, and maybe when you're when you've got a story like this to bring to the world, then you are going to run into a certain number of people who are who are reluctant to accept that maybe that it has based in fact. Murph, just before we go, uh, the other big sporting event of the weekend: Corks come back against Dublin, the Dublin Herders. Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I think. You know, you can. Everyone always puts the caveat. Well, you know, it's just the league. Uh, but in, in in this particular edition of the league, Dublin have been hammered by Cork in Crow Park, conceding thirty four points. And then yesterday, we're up by twelve at one stage. There were seven points up with sixty five minutes played, and yet still managed to contrive to lose contrive to lose the game. I mean, if Dublin face Cork later this year, I don't think that you can wipe either of those memories. Uh, from a team's collective consciousness. I mean, there are losses where context is everything, and then there are losses that sing, I think, regardless of the competition, and they are two losses. The the one yesterday in particular, um, that, that, you know, the, they're, the, they're definitely in the latter, the latter half. Yeah, it's funny, because when you read, 
you assume, okay, the league is a league and it's almost written off by managers and then they move on to the championship, which as a whole is true. A manager, depending on their county, won't get too carried away. Even if they get relegated sometimes, it doesn't necessarily, it's not the end of the world, but that's usually the basic requirement. We avoid relegation and anything else that happens is fine. But when you read really detailed accounts of seasons by these guys, so yeah. say Anthony Daly recently in his book last year, Jack O'Connor and Keys to the Kingdom, you'll find that there are things that are going on in the league that we mightn't even notice at the time, but that are season-defining. Yeah. Be it Kieran Donnie went up front in the championship, but mm. there are moments, there are matches that they'll target. It could be away to Tyrone or something for Kerry. It could be Cork for the Dublin Hurlers. And losing that can obviously be a massive psychological blow, even though the actual prize itself immediately isn't that big. Yeah, all of the all of the strands are there, but the important strand that a team takes from the league doesn't maybe reveal itself until until late July or August. And you would think, you know, Dublin could very easily get past this, or Dublin could play the entire championship and not play Cork, mm. but. It's you know in September or October these are actually two results. The result yesterday as well, which which we could be talking about again. We'll leave it at that. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you, Owen, and thank you, Kenneth. Thank you too, Kieran, and thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Ken. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. Drop us an email if you want to get in touch. Also, Second Captains at IrishTimes dot com, and do have a listen to our football podcast. If you get a chance today, we may have uh, we may have mentioned the massive Twitter war between one of our guests, Miguel Delaney, and one of Ireland's top comic writers. But you can have a listen out for that a little bit later if you get a chance. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 